Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's a cool WIP day out there, and it's going to go into the high 60s before it's over. So it's going to be a pleasant day to be out and about doing what you need to do. And one of the things you need to do is stay tuned here on 94 WIP, because always good conversation. When we come back in just a minute, Ian Roberts. Ian is a professor of linguistics at Cambridge University over there in England and author of the new book, The New Book, The Wonders of Language, or How to Make Noise and Influence People. Noise and a whole lot more coming up here on 94 WIP, the WIP time, 602. And we're back. We're talking language, making noise, and a whole lot more with Ian Roberts, professor at Cambridge University over there in England and author of the new book, The Wonders of Language, or How to Make Noise and Influence People. Good morning, Ian Roberts. Morning. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure, sir. All right. What is linguistics, anyway? I don't think people understand that word. Uh, Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Um, Linguistics is uh, studying the structure of languages. So um, it's studying what it is that lies behind all the talk uh, and what makes it possible for us to, to talk in the first place. And how do you proceed to do that, though? Well, um, you have to break it down into, into its parts, and one of the parts is studying the, the noises that we make, the sounds of, of speech and language, uh, and another part is looking at the structure of words, another part is looking at the structure of sentences, and another part is looking at meaning. Okay. Um, how would you begin to do that? Help me. I don't think people still understand. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, you, you can begin by um, looking at um, uh, analyzing just the way uh, we produce the sounds, like, um, you know, the way you move your tongue and your lips and your teeth uh, and so on when you're actually talking. That's the noises part, right? Because when you're talking, you're moving your, um, your tongue and lips and teeth and so on uh, in such a way that they make a noise, and that different ve- kinds of noise. And that varies from country to country and region to region, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not an inborn thing. Rather, it's culturally influenced. It's culturally influenced. That's right. Uh, because, you know, if you speak British English, you speak one way. If you speak American English, you speak another way. But still, um, uh, it, it's kind of inborn in the sense that all children have the ability to learn whatever language it is that they hear around them. In fact... Don't all children have the ability to learn more than one language? Absolutely, and in fact, many do. Uh, in, in fact, it's probably true that the majority of children in the world are exposed to more than one language. Okay. So how you make the sounds talks about where you're from, and where you're from leads to all kinds of other in- conclusions. Yep, that's right. That's right. So, you know, basically, I mean, uh, in the English-speaking world, we can mostly identify uh, where someone is from and sometimes even what social class they're from just by hearing them speak for a few moments. In Philadelphia, we're notorious for using D's, Dems, and Do's, and that works <laughs> yeah. you a Philadelphia person. Yep, there you go. That's a good example. Okay. Now, the words. Word structure, what's that about? Well, that's just uh, about um, how um, words can, there, is, there are basically very simple words in most languages, you know, the really basic words. Um, and then almost all languages, English included, um, have ways of making words more complicated uh, by adding pieces 
uh, and you can make them extremely complicated. Uh, and people do this very naturally all the time. And in fact, people very often invent new words kind of on the fly all the time. Such as? Well, <laughs> uh, a word that's come into everyone's vocabulary, especially over here, just in the last two years, is Brexit. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that word didn't exist two years ago. And what does that say about us? Well, that's, I think that's the really interesting part, actually. And this is really kind of the message I want to get across in the book. I think what it says about us is that uh, we're very creative all the time in the way we use language. Lots of people will say, oh, you know, I don't really speak very well. And, you know, uh, people are very insecure about how they speak. But actually, if you, I think really almost everybody um, is very creative and has the ability to be very inventive just in their ordinary speech. How do we use that then to influence people? That's the real question. Well, we do it all the time without even really realizing. I mean, you know, basically when you're talking to someone, you're usually trying to do one of two things. Either you're trying to tell them something, right? You're just transmitting information. Um, or you're trying to get them to do something, right, usually in your own interest. It's usually one of those two. You're trying to basically tell someone something or persuade them to do something. And those are both ways of influencing people. So, so that's the idea. How do you want us to use what you put forth in the book? What I want to do with it really is to, um, is to just get people to see um, what an amazing thing it is that we have in language, what a, what a great gift it is that we have. And, uh, you know, as far as we know, it looks like we're the only species that has language in this way, that has really articulate language. Um, and, you know, it's given us a huge advantage. Uh, because, you know, everything we do, all our civilization, all our technology, everything ultimately depends on our ability to communicate with each other, to influence each other, and to act together. And that's how we've managed to be so successful. You also talk about the structure of sentences, though, don't you? Ye yes. Now, that's, the, that's probably the, well, for me personally, it's the most interesting part. That chapter is also one of the more demanding chapters. So something that I try to do in the book is to really explain some, some fairly complicated ideas, I hope in a way that is kind of accessible to people. But what I say in the introduction is, um, you know, if you find a chapter difficult or boring, then just skip it. You know, it's, n it's not a whodunit. There's no plot, you know, so you can, you can skip around. Um, so anyway, coming back to the, to the structure of sentences, or syntax as it's known, that's where I try to show how you can put together words uh, to make more complicated phrases and sentences. And again, these can be actually very complicated. And normal people, when they're speaking in a normal way, use sentences which have, in fact, a very complicated structure without being aware of it at all. Are complicated sentences, though, a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think uh, it depends. I think it depends on how they're being used. If someone is speaking in a very complicated way just to show off, then in a way they're obscuring the message, right? So that's not good. But then in other times, uh, you know, you can have a fairly complicated sentence that really conveys a lot of information very efficiently. So I think it really depends. Now, we here in Radio Lander, in the business of language and putting uh -huh. forth noise, words, and complicated sentences. Do you find we do a good job or a bad one? 
Actually, I think mostly a good one. I, I called in a little early because I wanted to make sure that the transatlantic connection would work. And I overheard the end of your last interview with the previous guy. And um, it sounded really interesting, actually. I heard like the last two minutes. Um, so I would say that mostly I think people do a good job. I think, you know, you have to be a good communicator, right? Um, and we don't really know how to define what that is, but we know one when we hear one. So you have no sense of what makes good communication? Well, it's difficult to really, I mean, it's difficult to really define it. Uh, I, I, like I say, we kind of know it when we hear it, you know, someone who's very, who's very good at getting information across. It's like being a good teacher. A lot of, te you know, because I teach for a living, a lot of teaching is about effective communication. And, you know, any student in any class can tell you which professors are the good teachers and which are the bad ones, right? And uh, um, I remember that from when I was a student. And um, it's very difficult to define exactly what it is. You have to be able to sort of uh, not only get across complicated stuff, but do it in a way that people find engaging. Looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, must be good communication. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. That also but for that, us it wouldn't be. Okay. That also probably influences how you write, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And um, I think writing effectively is, is harder um, because um, it's more kind of static, you know. Uh, people can look back and look forward. Um, and um, what I found actually writing this book, I mean, I've written uh, several other books, but they were just really for academics, you know, whereas this book is, is meant to be for anybody. Um, so I wanted to make the style um, as, as accessible as I could. And um, it's kind of easy for about five pages to keep, it, keep the tone light and accessible and even a little bit kind of jokey. But to keep that going for 150 pages was a real challenge. So uh, I think writing well is, um, is something more difficult than speaking well, and I think most people find it more difficult. Okay. Um, when you write, certainly... You miss things like tone of voice, emphasis, yeah. and even the breathing structure of communication. Exactly, exactly. See, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, language, spoken language has its natural rhythm, which is in part determined by the fact that um, if you actually think about it, and again, I point this out in the book, basically all speech is just an exhalation. You're just breathing out, and you're mod modifying the exhalation as you're breathing out by using your tongue and lips and so on. Um, and so... You have to breathe in every now and then, right? right. <laughs> and and that, um, that creates a natural rhythm of its own, and you don't have that in writing. And that's one of the big differences and big difficulties for, for uh, the transition from speaking to writing. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Ian Roberts, professor in linguistics at the University of Cambridge and author of the new book, The Wonders of Language, or how to make noise and influence people. All right, Ian, how does this though work to influence people? I'm sorry, could you repeat how that? How does this work though to influence people? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, um, as I said, the, the main thing is that um, uh, most of the time when we're speaking, we're actually trying to influence people. Uh, maybe subconsciously, but that's what we're really doing. And so um, what I just describe in the book is how that really works. And how so um, it's, not, it's not really so much about getting ahead, although obviously if you, uh, um, if you can be very good at influencing people, then you can get ahead. 
But how does their choice of words, speaking patterns, breathing, tone of voice, all that good stuff influence people? Do we know? Well, uh, because um, if you can do it effectively, if you can do it well, and like I say, I really believe most of us can, um, then um, uh, you, you uh, influence people efficiently, and so you get what you want. <laughs> okay. How you're an observer of the current scene and how people mm -hmm. around the world communicate. How's our president doing? <laughs> um, after the first hundred days? Yep. Um, uh, it's hard to tell. I think, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to make any kind of political <laughs> pronouncement here. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that. But um, uh, one thing I think is very interesting is the way he's been using tweets, uh, which is very original. And it seems to have had an impact. Oh, absolutely. Just it's revolutionized how presidents communicate. But yeah, go ahead. This is a man who uses words like big, great, fantastic. That gives a certain image, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, I think it does. And I think he's uh, well, I suspect that the, um, that's kind of deliberate, that he's trying to project a certain type of image by doing that. So that's a way of trying to influence people. <laughs> but how would you recommend then we, the listener, make our assessment of the people who are speaking? Oh, um, well, uh, I think um, basically I think you have to think about why they might be saying things in the way that they're saying them. Uh, you know, what the motivation is, what they're uh, how they're trying to influence you and in what way. I mean, there are a couple of things in the book that might be relevant there, I think. Such as? Well, there's one chapter which is actually just called How to Influence People. Um, and it talks about how, um, again, just in everyday life, all of us very kind of unconsciously um, actually mean more than we say, right? So uh, I give the example, imagine... Um, a husband, a faithful husband, uh, goes out one evening to his wife, and he says, uh, "I'm just going out. I'm just going out for a beer. I'm not. I'm not leaving you." Right? What would the wife conclude? Why that there's he... something funny going on, yeah. right? Why, why, why did he, he say, say he's not leaving me? <laughs> I mean, literally, it's true. He's a faithful, happily married husband. He's not leaving his wife. But if he actually says he's not leaving her, logically, that's just true. But it means, it, it plants an idea in the wife's head. Why did he say that? Maybe he is thinking of leaving me, right? Right. So that's, um, so that's something, he didn't say anything. In fact, he actually explicitly said he wasn't leaving her, but she gets the idea that maybe he's thinking of it. And that's the way in which we mean more than we say all the time. Another famous example, which I don't give in the book, actually, uh, is the example, imagine if, uh, you're writing a letter of recommendation for somebody, you know, you, as a professor or as a boss, you've been asked to write a letter of recommendation, and you say, oh yeah, this guy's a good guy, he always came to work on time, uh, yours faithfully, and sign off the letter, the conclusion would be that you don't think he's any good, right? Right, because it's so bland, blech. Yeah, because it doesn't say anything. Right. But, lit again, the literal meaning is perfectly okay. You said, oh, he's punctual. That's a good thing, right? But you don't say anything about any other aspect, so the, the, the reader concludes that there's something really bad there. But where did the reader get that information? It was never explicitly stated, right? Right. 
So, we so our everyday talk and writing is full of examples like this. It's actually very, very interesting. So we need to think about the words behind the words, the meanings behind the meanings. That's a very good way to put it, the words behind the words, or the intentions behind the words. And, you know, people do subtly influence each other a lot like that. And I think skillful politicians are, are just very, they, they pick up on this without knowing about it, you know, in an academic way. They, they sort of, um, they, they have a natural capacity to pick up on this. And that's how they get ahead, the good politicians, the good orators and speakers. What are some of the other issues you address in the book? Um, well, another thing I talk about, completely different topic, um, is um, uh, how uh, children learn their first language. So, you know, little kids. I mean, if you think about it, um, a six-month-old baby certainly makes noises, uh, but um, they're not, you know, they're not articulate noises, right? It's just crying and, and gurgling and what have you. Uh, but then by the time that kid is, say, four or five years old, just a few short years later, they're speaking pretty fluently, Right. Right. Um, uh, and maybe even starting to read and write. And so, you know, that's an amazing accomplishment, if you think about it, to go in just, say, three and a half years from not having any kind of language to being a fluent speaker. Uh, and any parent can tell you that that is, you know, when they watch their kids go through this, that that really is an amazing thing. And um, it's very interesting to look at how they do it. We don't know everything. Some of it's a bit mysterious, but we have a good idea about quite a few of the stages. And isn't that all really, for the young child, a matter of imitation? It's more than imitation. Uh, obviously, they're to some extent imitating, and it's actually very interesting. Children are very, very good mimics. And another thing we know about our species as humans is that we're very good mimics compared to other apes, for example, who don't do that. Um, but um, it's more than imitation because children say they make up their own things. Like, for example, uh, um, they, they make what we think of as mistakes, but sometimes they're very logical mistakes. Like if a child says, I singed the song instead of I sang the song, right? What the child is really doing is making the verb a regular verb because to put a verb in the past in English, you add ed. So if the child says, I singed the song, that's the normal rule. What the child doesn't know yet is that sing is an irregular verb, so instead of singed, the past is sang. Uh, so children, so they're not imitating because they wouldn't hear anyone saying singed. What they're doing is being very logical, a little bit too logical in this case. You're almost implying that some of it comes from internal, not learned. It does. I, I, think, I think really, you know, when you look carefully at what children are doing, you have to say that some of it comes from, from uh, within. Obviously not everything. I mean, uh, like I said at the beginning, um, a child growing up in, in the U.S. or Britain in an English-speaking environment is going, to learn, is going to end up speaking English, and clearly that doesn't come from within. That comes from outside. A kid growing up in Paris will learn French. Um, but, um, but some of this business of, of forming very logical rules, which are sometimes more logical than the real rules of the language, that has to come from within, that sense of what a logical rule is, because they're not taught that, and they can't get it from imitation. It's almost hardwired? Yeah, this is the big debate. <laughs> uh, I talk about this very briefly because it is such a complicated debate. Um, it, something is hardwired. Exactly what it is, 
is, is really hard to tell. And the other thing that we don't know about, uh, because we can't really do the relevant experiments, um, is um, what the children's brain is like, what the wiring of the brain is like. Uh, because, you know, it's unethical to uh, conduct brain experiments on children. <laughs> and you're listening to 94 WIP. We'll be right back after these messages. The WIP time, 625. And we're back. It's Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Ian Roberts, professor of linguistics at Cambridge University and author of the new book, The Wonders of Language, or How to Make Noise and Influence People. Ian, in the last segment, we talked about how babies and little kids learn language and how it comes out of them. I'm also thinking about older people, people who have strokes or other brain injuries, and language gets lost, golden, or whatever. How does that work? Yes, yes, it it, um, it can, um, uh, and um, that does quite often happen in the case of stroke. Um, uh, so, yeah, in fact, um, we know that there are two different ways that this can happen, basically, and it seems to be connected to um, where the uh, brain damage is. Um, in that way, we learn something actually about how uh, about which parts of the brain are kind of the language centers. I've also heard of people who've had stroke and other things who, when they reach for a word, they can't find the word, but they find the word's first cousin, if you will. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and also there are cases of people who are bilingual who lose one language but not the other. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? It has to be. Um, one way or another, it more or less has to be that um, it's, different, it's slightly different parts of the brain. Right, so just, you know, the damage is done to one very specific area, and that has one very specific effect, and another area is left intact, so there's no, there's no effect. Now, we talked earlier about how young children can learn more than one language quite easily, but the older we get, do we lose, don't we seem to lose that ability to learn another language? We do. That seems to be what happens. Uh, in fact, um, people talk about what's called a critical period, for learning a language. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of window uh, in your life when you can do this, and um, that window closes quite young, actually. It looks as though it closes around um, adolescence. So I mean, if, if you're over about something like 12 or 13 or 14, you're going to find it harder to learn another language. I remember high school French was death for me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, this is why, actually, in quite a few countries, I think in parts of the U.S. too, um, they've started teaching foreign languages to much younger children uh, because they're much better at it. Hmm. Or at least laying the foundation. Do we, teach yeah. la- do we teach language well? Do you have any sense of that? Do we respect it? Whether sorry? Do we teach language well? Uh, mostly not. <laughs> Um, which is another reason why people find it difficult, because it's generally not particularly well taught. Um, it's hard to know what the best method is for teaching foreign language. Um, uh, really, the best way to learn a foreign language is um, once you've got a basic grounding, you know, just a few words and ideas about how the, uh, the grammar of the language works, um, then really uh, the best thing to do is to just go somewhere where, where people speak the language and try uh, to get away from people who speak English, which can be difficult. Um, that, that's really the best way to do it. But do we teach English well? I mean, I remember being taught English, and it was vocabulary words, write them five times and use them in a sentence, or um, 
how to diagram a sentence with no reason why we diagram a sentence. Yeah, um, again, I think uh, diagramming sentences um, is probably a useful exercise, but um, it has to be made kind of interesting. Um, and very often, uh, traditionally, it wasn't. Um, and learning vocabulary, the best way, I think, to really improve your vocabulary is just to read a lot. Um, I think trying to learn vocabulary by rote and very consciously, most people just find it really boring. Um, but if you read something that's interesting, uh, there'll be new, you know, in a good novel or something like that, you'll probably come across a few new words. And, you know, you can look them up uh, or you can just figure out the meaning from the context. And that's, that's the best way to learn, I think. Yeah, you're teaching it on the college level. How, how receptive yeah. are they? Well, um, they're mostly quite receptive because they've, um, you know, they've, they've opted to do it. I mean, they've made a choice to do it, and so uh, they're fairly receptive. But like I say, I think you still need to try and make it very interesting and lively and engaging, um, which, um, especially at the very beginning, actually, can be quite a challenge. You know, once you get them drawn in and they get interested, then it's fine. How do you want us to use the book? Well, really, I would just like people to read it and, um, and um, you know, get something from it, reflect on it. Because, like I said, the, um, the, the goal, the reason why I wrote it primarily, um, was um, so that people would get an idea of this fantastic gift they have. One thing is that, you know, we're so immersed in language all the time, you know, because we're talking to each other all the time. Or even when we're not talking to anyone, we're thinking in language. And even when we're asleep, we're dreaming in language. So, you know, we're really kind of um, in language all the time. And so we take it completely for granted. And we just don't realize what an amazing thing it is and what a fantastic gift we have. True, it's a gift. Don't, don't animals seem to have the same gift while they don't understand words? That, well, not while they don't speak words like we do. Yeah, um, well, no, it looks as though, I mean, as far as we can tell, animals just don't really have anything quite like language. They have ways of communicating, that's for sure. Um, uh, but they don't really have anything that's comparable to words or sentences the way we have. But if they can communicate, mm -hmm. isn't that language? It doesn't have to be. I mean, uh, communication is just transmitting information, which is not quite the same thing as language. I mean, language can, is, is used for communication a lot of the time because it's an extremely good way of communicating. You can communicate an enormous amount of information of different types very, very efficiently. Um, Animals can communicate information, but they do it in a much more simple way and um, nowhere near um, as, as they, can't, they can't communicate um, very complicated messages. Um, for example, for the most part, animals can only talk about something which is in the here and now. Animals can't, talk, can't communicate with each other about tomorrow or yesterday, whereas we can quite easily. Where do you want us to go to look for more information about you, the book, and the whole issue? Um, you can look either, you can, well, uh, on Amazon okay. um, or on the Cambridge University Press website, which is um, www.cambridge.org, O-R-G. I'll also testify it's there at the Barnes Noble website as well. Oh, good. Great. What's next, Ian Roberts? What's next? <laughs> um, well, actually, um, with a couple of colleagues here in Cambridge, we're thinking of trying to write a book called um, 
the history of ideas in 60 languages. So we want to take 60 languages from around the world and from all of history and show how each of them contributed to, uh, to culture and history. We're just starting on that. It's at a very early stage. Sounds like a very fascinating topic. Yeah, we're, um, I'm pretty excited about it. And I'd like to say thank you to Ian Roberts, professor of linguistics, Cambridge University, and author of the new book, The Wonders of Language, or How to Make Noise and Influence People. Thank you, Ian Roberts. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It's my pleasure as well. And you're listening to another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More after these messages. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a beautiful day for conversation here on 94 WIP. Many times I've talked about a historical gem here in Philadelphia that a lot of people don't know about, the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. Philadelphia's only Victorian house museum authentically restored. It tells the story of what life was like 100 years ago or so here in the Delaware Valley and across the country for a middle-class family. And one of the things they do there at the mansion is bring us theatrical performances, and one is coming up. And to help us understand that performance, Megan Edelman, one of the actresses in the new drama, Coming to the Mansion. Good morning, Megan Edelman. Good morning, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. It's my pleasure. Now, what are you up to at the mansion? At the mansion? I thought you meant right now. And I was no. like, well, I just woke up. Um, yeah, so at the mansion, we're doing a production of Anne, uh, Anne of Green Gables, directed and adapted by Josh Hitchens, who is the director of the theater program at the mansion. Now, Anne of the Green Gables is a Victorian children's classic, really, primarily for young ladies. What's it about? So it's about a young woman named Anne, who's about 11 years old, and she's actually an orphan. She was orphaned uh, pretty young in life as a a baby, and she has worked for different families and lived uh, in the workhouse, and she gets mistakenly adopted by a brother-sister pair who are actually looking for a boy, and um, once she's brought to their home, she realizes that they're looking for a boy and thinks it's the most tragical moment of her life when she thinks they won't be keeping her. Uh, but spoiler alert, they do. And it's about her life as she moves through learning to be with friends and kind of going through a coming-of-age story. Now, children back then, for many families, weren't things to be loved and cherished, although hopefully that was part of it. They were mm-hmm. labor, really, weren't they? Absolutely. And, that's- and um, yeah, when the family is actually looking for a boy particularly to help with field work, especially because the brother, Matthew Cuthbert, is getting older and really needs help out in the field. Um, but once they see this little girl, you know, they do have uses for a girl as well. And Matthew particularly says, while Marilla, the sister, is worried that Anne might not be as, of much service to them, that they might be of service to her. Um, so he kind of doesn't necessarily take pity, but looks at the opportunity to help this young girl in her life moving forward. So she gets really lucky. Now, why did you decide to become involved in the production? 
Well, I've actually worked at the mansion many times um, in their Victoria, Victorian theater program with uh, Diane Richardson, who's the executive director of the mansion, as well as Josh Hitchens, who I said uh, runs the program there. And it's truly been a wonderful experience. It's a really special space. It's really cool to do theater in site-specific places. Um, and working with Josh and Diane, they're both wonderful people who want to tell important stories that, you know, were created in times before, but are totally resonant with uh, the communities today. And I certainly know Diane Richardson, and she's an amazing woman who has done wonders with the mansion. Now, Absolutely. I see by the information I have that there's something of a sister act going on, isn't there? (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Um, So my sister, Molly Edelman, who's also a local actress, will be playing Anne, um, and I'll be playing her bosom friend, Diana. So it wasn't too hard to tap into that special relationship between the two of us when acting. Is that you two on the flyer? Yes, it is. Absolutely. I'm in the pink dress and Molly's in the other dress. How wonderful. (laughs) Um, Now, when is it happening, though? So it's actually this weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There are performances uh, at 8 p.m. on Friday, or excuse me, 7 p.m., 7 p.m., everyone, on uh, Friday the 5th and Saturday the 6th. And then there is a 2 o'clock performance on Sunday the 7th, as well as a 6.30 performance that night as well. Sounds exhausting. (laughs) Actually, it's pretty great. We really get invigorated by doing these kinds of performances. What are some of the other productions you've been involved in at the mansion? Um, so I started by actually doing presentations of Susan B. Anthony um, and her um, address for the Declaration of the Rights of Women um, at the mansion. But since then, I've also done a full-length productions of A Doll's House as well as Little Women, which was almost a year ago exactly. Um, and my sister and my mother were actually involved in that production as well. So talk about a family affair. Um, and then the mansion also does an annual murder mystery in October, sometimes in early November, um, where we adopt characters also from the Victorian period. And I've been involved in that for years. Well, as a young woman of today, what are your thoughts on the Victorian period? It was a hard life, wasn't it? It certainly was. You know, sometimes I feel like I get really tired at my desk job or, you know, just however life unfolds. But back then, they really had so much work to do. And to be a woman, as you mentioned, is is something particular in a time period and place. And there weren't as many opportunities as there are today, um, especially for lives of leisure. leisure. Um, And again, the mansion's really cool in depicting stories of women particularly. The focus of the theater program has been on that a lot in recent years. For example, uh, just last month, they did the show Tribulation Periwinkle, which was based on uh, notes by Louisa May Alcott of her time as a Civil War nurse. And um, the mansion has a special program called Upstairs Downstairs, where it's a tour of the space, but um, you get these pins that represent women of the period, and you kind of represent them and learn their stories a little bit more. And it's really special because you might get a really well-known character, someone like a Susan B. Anthony, for example, or a Louisa May Alcott, or you might get someone who was a nurse or a um, domestic or even a prostitute who may be unnamed. But um, as Diane puts together that program, she finds it's really important to represent those people who don't always have a voice. Uh, So I think that's really special. Somehow I can't imagine a lady of the evening inside the mansion, but that's another discussion. (laughs) No, no, but just a representation of the past. Okay. um, 
why do you do it? I mean, you've got a day job. Yeah, I'm sure you want to go home occasionally and put your feet up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, theater is such a special way to tap into the human experience. And I, I've been involved with theater pretty much all through my life. My parents did it, so they inspired me to do it. And when you get to tell these kinds of stories where you really find an impact and find something new to say, um, it's really cool. And it's the thing that I'm very passionate about. Um, I love my day job, but I also do love to do something when I come home and kind of dedicate my work towards something uh, that I feel the public might be able to get a little something out of. So I have to do it. Otherwise, I'd be sad, honestly. Now, where is the mansion? How people place it in Philadelphia's geography? Yeah, the mansion is located in Germantown, um, and it's set among a lot of other really cool buildings. It's actually fun to just kind of walk around the space that it's in, um, and there are tours available of the mansion as well. But, yeah, it's in Germantown. I think if I know the, I remember the address correctly, 200 West Topahawken Street. That's absolutely correct. And you can reach the mansion at 215-438-1861, right? That's right. Yes, that's the number. Good for me. And <laughs> well done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And one more time, the production Anne of the Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. That's such a yes. Victorian name. I know, those three names. You know, they're really doing it. <laughs> and it's happening one more time when? It's this weekend, uh, Friday, May 5th, and Saturday, May 6th at 7 p.m., and Sunday, May 7th at 2 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. And there is a charge, but for more yes. information and to get tickets, Call the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion at 215-438-1861. You'll probably speak to Diane Richardson, a fabulous lady. Absolutely. And and tell her you heard it here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. We're going to see you on Broadway someday there, Megan. That's the plan. (laughs) So we can say, if you go to see her in particular, you can say you saw her win. That's right. (laughs) Thank you, Megan Edelman. And thank Thank you, you, Peter. My pleasure. And thank you to the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion for telling us about this fun event. And it's good, an event for family, too. Absolutely. The mansion specializes in activities for adults and kids alike. No bad words, no violence. Just a really good story. You got it. Thank you again, Megan Edelman. Thanks, Peter. My pleasure. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's going to be a cool, lovely WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. Perfect for good conversation, whether it's with me now, later on WIP Sunday, or throughout the day. And no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always fantastic conversation. All right, it's a beautiful day out there. The sun is coming up. Gorgeous. Um, I want to know how I'm doing. Do you like the programming you're hearing? Is there a guest you want to suggest? Do you want to tell me to turn off the microphone and go home? Whatever. So here's what you do if you have a comment you want to make. You can reach me at peter.solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, peter.solomon at hotmail.com. That's peter.solomon at hotmail.com, and let me know how I'm doing. Or you can reach me on Twitter at hotmailsolomon, at hotmailsolomon, and let me know how things are going. 
with the shows here on 94 WIP. I want to be of service to you and the Delaware Valley community with the information I bring you here on the shows. Hopefully you like what you're hearing. And finally, I want to say thank you to a number of people, to my guests this morning, to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, couldn't do the show without you, Phil, and to my dear wife, Ann Tideman-Solomon, associate producer. The two of them, Phil and Ann, make the show possible. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Stay tuned for me on WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.